Welcome to Shabbat Replay, where we serve up a little slice of Shabbat during the week. Today's episode is an excerpt from our Friday night service on January 21st. Rabbi Stephen was joined by Ruben Shimonov, the National Director of Sephardi House and Young Leadership at the American Sephardi Federation. Ruben is also the founder of the Sephardic Mitzrahi Q Network, a space for queer Jews of Sephardic and Mitzrahi backgrounds, as well as a talented calligrapher whose art reflects his multicultural upbringing. We think you'll enjoy this fascinating discussion of queer identities, Ashkenormativity, and how Sephardic and Mitzrahi communities have contributed to Jewish history and liturgy in often unsung ways. So I'm so excited to be joined by Ruben Shivanov, who is a phenomenal activist, educator, and artist. We're going to be having a conversation uh, for a little while to talk a bit about the work that he does in the Jewish community and also the work that he produces um, as a calligrapher and artist. So welcome. Uh, the last time I saw you, you were working with the Sephardi Mizrahi Q Network, and we were both in New York. Uh, so, so catch me up a little bit, both where are you now, what are you doing with your life, and um, how did you get involved in working in the Sephardi Mizrahi queer community? Yeah, thank you, Rabbi, first of all, for, for having me. Thank you, Mishkan, uh, for having me. It's always, um, it's always a lot of fun and a joy to be welcomed into new Jewish spaces and to connect to the beautiful tapestry of the Jewish world. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to be here. Um, so yeah, I when we uh, last spoke in earnest, uh, I was uh, very deeply involved and engaged in um, this organization that has been near and dear to my heart, the Sephardic Mizrahi Q Network. I'll say a little bit more about it in a second, and, but I'm, and I'm still uh, very much uh, committed to um, our mission and to, and to our work. Um, so the, the journey continues and um, I wear other hats as well, besides being the founding executive director of the Sephardic Mizrahi Q Network. And we can talk about that in a second as well. But in terms of SMQN, um, it's, uh, I think it's a great place to start because it gives a glimpse into um, my, my own work as an, as an educator, as a community builder, as a social entrepreneur. It gives a glimpse into my own personal identity and into the things that deeply resonate with me. Um, SMQN began actually uh, this February will be our five year, the fifth year anniversary of our first gathering. We're a little bit older than that, but in terms of the first time we came together in person, it was almost five years ago. And we began out of a sense of urgency. We uh, we, we emerged uh, because of um, a realization that those of us at the crossroads of Sephardic and Mizrahi identities, and I, and um, what I mean by that, in kind of on one foot, there are a lot of there's a deeper discussion to have about about that as. There are deeper discussions to have about all identities, which are fluid and ever-changing and dynamic uh, and mean different things for different people. But on one foot, when we talk about Sephardic and Mizrahi Jewry, we're talking about Jews with deep roots in North Africa, in the Middle East, also known as West Asia, and Central Asia. Um, it extends beyond that as well, but, uh, but that is, I would say, a big chunk of the Sephardic Mizrahi world are Jews who have lived for uh, centuries, millennia actually, um, in 
this part of the world. Um, and Jews who have lived um, largely um, in um, under Islamic uh, empires, often. So we're all, often called also like Jews of the Islamic world. Um, this is a community or communities whose stories are a deep, deep part of the Jewish story, an important part of the Jewish book. But these are chapters that have often been relegated to the margins in, um, in the US, in other ways in Israel, um, and uh, and there are uh, strides that have been made to kind of to move the needle forward, but there's still a lot of work to be done in celebrating and um, and understanding more deeply our experiences and our stories. And this is before even the LGBTQ plus piece. This is just talking about the story of uh, essentially uh, non-European Jews. I, I I hate to just painted with that broad of a stroke, because we also know that Jews in Europe were often uh, very much seen as the other as well and faced their own persecution marginalization. Um, having said that, specifically in the American context, uh, there is still a certain more myopic notion, I would say, of who a Jew is and what a Jew looks like. Um, those things are changing, but um, that's very recently that they're changing. And uh, and I'm very proud to be part a part of that of that change, of that understanding that our uh, collective identity as, as a Jewish people is deeply eclectic and diverse and beautiful. And we're all better off for it, for lifting that up, for lifting up the beautiful stories and diverse stories of Ashkenazi, sisters and brothers and siblings, uh, but also uh, celebrating uh, the, the full rich tapestry of the Jewish experience, which includes Sephardic Jews, Mizrahi Jews, Jews of color, and beyond. Even those don't encompass all of the Jewish identities. And so the Sephardic Mizrahi Q network um, was born out of this understanding, this realization that not only are Sephardic and Mizrahi stories often on the margins, but as queer folks, we are kind of a minority within a minority within a minority uh, and uh, are often often find ourselves checking different parts of our identities at the door, whether it's checking our queer identities in more traditional spaces of our communities or whether it's checking our Sephardic and Mizrahi identities, deeply rooted North African, Middle Eastern, Central Asian, West Asian identities and checking those in in well-intentioned queer Jewish spaces, but Jewish spaces that are, as the term uh, kind of uh, a term that has emerged, uh, I don't use it too often because I don't like to, you know, it's uh, buzzwords have their limits, but I will say it right now um, in spaces that can be Ashkenormative, meaning assuming that the Ashkenazi experience is the de facto, um, uh, de facto um, typical Jewish experience. And that can exist in the queer Jewish world as well. And so with this realization that we didn't really have a space where we could bring all parts of who we are and all layers of our identity, we realized there's a real urgency in doing something about it. And so we created the Sephardic Mizrahi Q Network, which is the space uh, to hold up, uplift, elevate, celebrate, and, um, and more deeply understand the experiences of queer Sephardic Mizrahi Jews. SMQN is a, is a movement uh, that seeks to create this vibrant, supportive, and dynamic space for those of us at the intersection of these identities 
But furthermore, Rabbi, it's a space for folks from other backgrounds to also connect to our work in, uh, in, 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 in addressing something that I think is just a Jewish peoplehood issue, which is celebrating the beautiful eclectic mosaic of the Jewish people. And so we really fit, feel like our work both empowers some of the most kind of vulnerable segments of the Jewish population, but also enriches the entire Jewish world. Mm, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think something that's always attracted me so much to the work that, that you do and that other people in the Sephardi Mizrahi community does is that it does create space for Jews of different experience, you know, um, not only um, members of those communities, but certainly Jews of color and also converts as well, right? People who maybe might even have a European background, but not the same kind, right? As their, you know, Ashkenazi siblings. So um, that's really powerful. I think something that I'd love for you to, to share, because you mentioned how um, Sephardi Mizrahi stories are so um, integral to the Jewish story. Um, and and I I've started to discover this, but there's a lot more I think Sephardi and Mizrahi influence in what we think of as kind of normative Jewish practice um, than most people know. Uh, I, I know before before we hopped on to record this, we were talking a little bit about even some liturgy that's super common that actually finds its origin um, in the Sephardi and Mizrahi world. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious if you could. If you know some good examples, that, yes, that yeah. Oh my gosh, I can I can speak about this forever. So I will give you a few examples. I first want to say that I appreciate what, what you said. That I really do believe that lifting up uh, Sephardic and Mizrahi experiences, and and I I try off you know to use the plural because it's not a monolith either. But lifting up these experiences um, again, not only echoing what what you said, not only does it empower the uh, communities that might have not felt seen and heard, but it actually can empower other communities on the margins as well, because ultimately uh, it um, it conveys the, the, the message is that we want to dig deeper into the, as I said, the mosaic of our people. And so other folks, other Jewish folks who might have experiences that have been relegated a little bit more to the margins or to the periphery, I have found have been really inspired by uh, by what we do, which is why our our our, our community um, is intersectional and does have these transcendental effects. And more deeply, um, folks also who are coming from maybe the more classical American third fourth generation Ashkenazi experience, which itself again not a monolith, but so many of them also. Um, I have received some incredible love, uh, amazing love and support from folks who um, are thirsty and hungry to learn more. Um, most of the work that we do is in the queer, is for LGBTQ plus folks uh, of different backgrounds, so they can all connect to what we're doing. But we also do have more public facing events and other, uh, my in my capacity as the national director of um, Safari House and Young Leadership for the American Sephardic Federation. It's a whole other role. Um, even more so, I would say that work is both for uh, to enrich the, um, um, the, the the lives and experiences of Sephardic and Israeli young folks, but to also deeply enrich the Jewish world in celebrating and understanding uh, our uh, the, the the diversity of our of our people. And as you said, part of that, um, it, you know, part of that broader work of engaging the, 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 the Jewish world at large, and by the way, also the, the world beyond the Jewish realm, um, Muslim Jewish interfaith work, other bridge building um, that um, Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews really can add a lot to. Um, a lot of that work, um, I think, requires or um, 
allows us to see, as you said, the deep ways in which Sephardic and Mizrahi wisdom and narratives and stories um, uh, have been a part, an intrinsic part of the Jewish experience. So a couple of examples, just a couple. Number one, um, we just had Tu Bishvat, right? So it's becoming a very kind of in vogue thing now to have a Tu Bishvat Seder. Well, the Tu Bishvat Seder modeled after this, the Passover Seder um, was actually um, championed by and, and <coughs> uh, 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 developed, I guess, by, introduced by uh, Sephardi mystics, Kabbalists in the land of Israel in the 1500s. Uh, places like Tzafat, Safed in northern Israel um, has been an important spiritual and mystical center. And uh, one of the main ways it has become that important center in one of the four holy cities is by uh, the influx and migration of Jews from Spain, which was um, in many ways for a big chunk of its history, really more a part of North Africa and the Middle East than it was part of Christian Europe. Uh, but there was a, 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 a refugee crisis after 1492 of Jews being expelled from Spain um, under uh, uh, during uh, Catholic rule. Um, and, uh, and a big chunk of that community, um, they, they come to different parts of the Middle East or North Africa, and a significant amount uh, uh, comes back to, uh, at that point, it's the Ottoman Empire, um, uh, to the land of Israel under Ottoman rule, and, um, and kind of breathe new life into Jewish life um, in, in the land of Israel. And so Tzfat is one of those centers uh, where, where this new life is being breathed into by these Sephardic thinkers, um, and they they introduce uh, these rituals like the Tubishvat Seder. Um, another person from that same time period and region, a Sephardic Jew who is very much a part of just Jewish liturgy, is Shlomo Halevi Alkabetz, um, who was a uh, a, a poet, a, a liturgical poet, and a spiritual uh, leader who authored. Pardon me. Who authored um, Lecha Dodi? Right, one of the central parts of our Kabbalat Shabbat welcoming in the Shabbat service. Right, in many ways, sort of the um, uh, the. the um, the, the peak of, of the service. I'm trying to think of, of, of another word, but it's 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 kind of the the, the pinnacle, every the climax, everything kind of leads to this beautiful part of the service. And that liturgical song, Lecha Dodi, uh, was composed by a uh, Sephardic mystic. I would say the last thing that I'm just thinking of right now. Um, apologies, apologies, two two other quick things. Uh, Purim, right? The story of Jews in Persia. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not like that happened and then Jews of Iran, Persia went away. My ancestry, I am uh, part of the Judeo-Persian world, which includes Jews of Iran, of the Caucasus and Central Asia. Uh, I'm from Uzbekistan. That's where I was born. Um, and so this is part of our story. It's part of the Jewish story. And it's also part, more specifically, of the, of the Persian-speaking Jewish story. Um, there is a reason. It's a coincidence that Esther holds deep particularly deep significance among Iranian Jews and Persian speaking Jews. And to this day, um, the tomb of Esther and Mordechai, the protagonists of the Purim story, this tomb in Habadan in Iran is visited by Jews who still live in Iran. There's still a small uh, a minority of Jews uh, uh, that live there. And then finally, the Talmud, the, 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 
uh, rabbinic uh, uh, collection of discussions and debates and law uh, that was redacted and compiled. There were two of them. As, as you know, there was the, the Jerusalemite one, uh, Talmud Yerushami, and then there was the Babylonian one. And actually, the one that gained supremacy was the Babylonian one. Well, where is Babel? Where is Babylon? It's modern day Iraq. And in Iraq, um, uh, Surah Pumedith and then later Baghdad, I mean, these were. Jewish centers that influenced all of world Jewry, right? These are centers that produced the Talmud. These are centers that had the most in central uh, academies, the, the, the Babylonian Geonic academies that influenced um, Jewish communities around the world. And so we have to understand that these stories are a big part of the Jewish experience. I love that people are now more excited about uh, Sephardic Mizrahi stories and, and lifting up Jewish diversity, but it still breaks my heart when people think, well, you know, but that's something, that's some, an exotic footnote, right? Or, yay, check, I, I learned that, but that's still kind of otherized. And they essentialize it, they exoticize it. I don't think it's doing any of us any good. Um, we need to uh, honor these stories for, for what they are and, and their distinct cultures. And, and in doing that, also see the ways in which they are part of the broader Jewish story and the way that they have contributed to the, the larger saga of the Jewish people. Mm. Yeah, amen to that. Amen to that. I, I, I think it's just remarkable. And, and thank you for sharing those examples, because even from um, something as um, the word I'm looking for, um, a, a kind of a more uh, kind of condensed example, like a piece of liturgy or maybe some of the foods that we enjoy now do, I think more like kind of uh, foundational examples, like, like the Talmud, right? Which is actually what, you know, our evolving interpretive tradition stands on, right? Because we're not, you know, we're not biblical Jews. We are rabbinic Jews and we're rabbinic Jews because of the Talmud and the Talmud we use, as you mentioned, is the one that was produced, right? From the Sephardi Mizrahi community from Babylon. Yeah. And really, that's where the story, the, des, the the story of our diaspora, and we are our Judaism develops in the diaspora. Mm-hmm. Sorry to say, you know, I don't know if that's provocative to some people, but it does. And we can still have a deep connection to the land of Israel in our own ways, but our story largely, both in temporally and geographically, develops in the diaspora. And where does that diaspora begin? It begins Mizrah, east of the land of Israel, in. Uh, Babylon, and even before that, a little bit earlier with even the, the Syrian exile, which most of that story we don't know anymore because it's about, you know, 10 lost tribes, but but there are Jewish communities to this day who say that's where my Kurdish Jews, the Jews of Kurdistan say our story began even before the Babylonian exile. And so to understand that just Jewish history, we have to actually start with the Mizrahi Sfaradi story um, and the, the way in which then from Babylon, the kind of the the, the, the baton gets passed on in a very actually beautiful and seamless way to Spain, this whole other side of the Islamic world. But we have um, evidence of, of the historical evidence of thinkers going from Iraq by way of North Africa to then Al-Andalus or Sefarad or Spain and kind of becoming heir to that uh, to that tradition and, and, and moving it forward. So yes, as much as it's wonderful to see the ways that, you know, things connect in terms of food or, or music, there are deeper ways. Not to say those are superficial, but there are deeper, more profound ways in which uh, our stories are, um, are, 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 all, are all connected. And, um, and, and things that, this last thing I would say that we can all you know, uh, plug into. I just recently finished um, teaching my 
uh, or exploring with my students. I, I lead this fellowship for um, college students called the uh, Sephardi House Fellowship, which is an opportunity for college students around the nation to explore the depth, wisdom, and vitality of the greater Sephardic world as an integral part of the Jewish experience. And we just finished looking at the unparalleled, stunning Hebrew poetry that emerges a thousand years ago in Sephardad, in Spain, in Iberia, um, during what is often known as kind of the golden age. I would just say it's that's a little, uh, we're not going to paint with that broad of a stroke, a flourishing, a cultural intellectual flourishing of life there. And this poetry it is both a deep source of pride for the greater Sephardic world and Sephardic diaspora, but it also should be and is becoming to be more of a source of pride among just Jews, people like Ibn Gabirol, Yehuda Halevi, Ibn Ezra. These are um, incredible literary figures in um, of, 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 of the Jewish tradition. And so I, I'm always thinking about this, about how our stories really fit into this bigger um, saga, this bigger novel of the Jewish people. No, absolutely. I mean, that you could have to do a whole class on that, right? The the um, influence, right, of Sephardi uh, liturgists on essentially, if it's not borrowed from a psalm directly, um, it is a liturgy that was shaped by the way that they um, revolutionized Jewish poetry. Yeah. And let's also, and let's not, and not to get too, but I also want to just say, because I oh, see all these things are coming to my mind in terms of, uh, let's say, even let's zoom in back to kind of coming full circle to LGBTQ plus identity. There is so much in this poetry coming out of Sefarad that um, can be very affirming and be oh, just uh, very empowering for those of us who um, hold LGBTQ plus identities, right? This was in the poetry. Homoeroticism is in, is in the poetry. And um, in the Sephardic tradition in general, there was kind of in the classic Sephardic tradition, there was this understanding of, um, there was some, a balanced approach. There was a, I don't want to use the word moderate, but an approach that was deeply engaged um, with the world around us, right? Because we were able to by and large, not always, but but very often interact in very deep ways with our surroundings, with the societies and cultures around us, uh, which were lar largely Islamic cultures. Whereas during the, most of that time, our Ashkenazi siblings were being uh, brutally uh, persecuted under Christian rule. Again, not to say that it was all shadow in under Christendom and all light under Islamic rule, but there's something to be said about the kind of sensibilities that emerge in the Sephardic world that allowed for more of that interaction with the world that promoted people to be versed in secular studies. Maimonides was a physician, an astronomer, and a rabbi. He wrote in Arabic and he wrote in English. He knew his Islamic theology, right? So this is, it's a, that's the same world that also then produces some of this poetry that is, um, you know, I mean, the word queer would not have been used then, but is definitely, pushing some of those boundaries. It's also the same world that produces the first woman rabbi, Rabbi Ostad Barzani uh, from Kurdistan in, uh, in, the, um, in the 1600s, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, an amazing uh, uh, women figures like uh, Farha Sassoon of, uh, of the Iraqi Jewish community. These are women who we should all know about. And so again, so much to unpack there that can benefit us all. 
I do want, though, to now transition to um, hopefully uh, uh, to share some of the, the amazing work that you've done, uh, because in addition to all of the education advocacy that you do, you're also uh, a just stunning artist. My artistry or my passion for um, calligraphy, um, that this has really emerged as a natural expression of my Sephardic Mizrahi identity. Um, as uh, as someone who is a Jew coming from and, and part of a community that has really developed against the backdrop, our culture has developed against the backdrop of Islamic society around us. Um, it is a very natural expression of my Jewish identity to be in Muslim Jewish interfaith spaces. Um, and uh, I feel um, it's not only it's not just comfortable, it's um, it's natural, it's organic because um, our, you know, our intersections with uh, the intersections or the bridges between Jews and Muslims isn't just that we are part of the Abrahamic tradition, but actually many of us live side by side with our Muslim neighbors. Well, amen, amen to that. And um, thank you so much for taking the time to, to share your amazing work with us. And um, for those who want who want to see more, um, we'll be we'll be sharing ways to 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 follow your socials or be connected to the different organizations that you're a part of. Um, but for now, Shabbat Shalom. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you around. You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, Tune into Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Our schedule of services and programs can be found at mishkanchicago.org events, where there's also a link to donate and support our work. And you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at mishkanchicago. As always, we want to hear from you. On behalf of Teen Mishkan, thanks for tuning in.